A couple of weeks ago, I had the chance to hang out with a bunch of our college students at an event that we had here at the church. And one of the things that we did for fun at the event was to play a game through this really cool app called Slido. And here's how it works. The presenter asks a question, and then everybody picks up their phones, and in real time, as people are responding, this app just magically tabulates and displays all of the responses up on the screen so everybody can see it at the same time. And one of the questions that was very meaningful was something like, what's the most amazing, innovative thing that has been created in your lifetime? The internet, cell phones, the personal computer, Snapchat, some millennial, of course. <laughs> and the question definitely revealed some funny things about the different ages in the room. It really was entertaining. But what it really revealed is that we human beings are capable of some amazing, amazing things, advancement and innovation. In fact, along that line, I was just chatting with one of our deacons last week. He was telling me about an acquaintance of his whose daughter was born with a rare form of blindness and vision disease. This little girl could only see about an inch in front of her face. Everything else beyond that was blurry. Everything from a beautiful vista to the people that she loved the most. And you can imagine how difficult that would be. Eventually, though, this family came in contact with a medical team who had been making some advancements in vision science, and they were actually able to construct a pair of glasses that would help to offset and to, to reconfigure this little girl's sight. Now, that's amazing. Way better than Snapchat. That, that's amazing. And there is no question we could all share stories about how we have benefited from human innovation. In one sense, it's a common grace from the Lord. I am very, very thankful for Advil and for Novocaine and for indoor plumbing and, and a lot of other things. So what's the problem? The problem, I would propose, and I think the Bible proposes, the problem is that, that human innovation is not the issue in and of itself. We are creative image bearers of God, capable of amazing things. The problem is that we know it. And because we know it, we are susceptible to what might be the greatest barrier to a vibrant and healthy relationship with the Lord. Human pride. Today, we're going to look at a story in the book of Genesis that illustrates this point tragically well. So I want to invite you to meet me in God's word in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, I don't know what page it on, is on in the Pew Bibles, but it's somewhere before 50. So I think you'll find it. Uh, Genesis chapter 11, we will be studying verses 1 to 9. Please read along with me in your own copy of God's word or the words will be on the screen behind me. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. 
And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are a people, one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is God's word, and we are thankful for it. This short story is really a literary masterpiece. It uses all types of narrative tools to prove its point. Alliteration, a unique structure, irony, wordplay, and the story breaks down pretty easily into a couple of different scenes based on the primary characters. Scene one, human beings. Scene two, God himself. In scene number one, we have the pride and the rebellion of humanity. The pride, the defiance, the rebellion of human beings against God. And we see this pride displayed in a handful of ways that I think is really helpful and informative to us and how we manage this challenge. First, we see the pride of Babel displayed as simply disobedience to God. Simple disobedience to God's word and God's rule. The first couple of verses just paint the scene. The whole earth had one language and the same words and the people migrated from the east and they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Now you might say, that doesn't sound like a problem at all. It sounds kind of nice, right? One unified humanity, a giant kumbaya for mankind. But the question is, unified around what and who? And in this case, for this group of people, they were united around themselves, their own agenda, and in their defiance to God. Now, how do we know that? A couple things we see in the text. First, to migrate from the east, this directional language, should tip us off. Because when the Bible uses language of east or from the east, it usually associates that physical direction with a spiritual direction that moves away from God. In other words, these people were going their own way. Then there's this land of Shinar. Shinar was part of the, the ancient world and would eventually become a city that you might know. Babylon. And throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, Babylon serves as the embodiment of human defiance against God. Babylon is the city of man. And this is its origin story. 
You might also remember, as we think about the people's disobedience, Pastor Dan's sermon from a couple of weeks ago in the Genesis flood narrative. God saves Noah and his family by grace. He recommissions the entire human race. He says, receive my goodness, receive my blessing. Now go scatter and fill the earth. But here you notice human beings say, Lord, I, I hear you, but we've got, we've got another idea. You see this, that plain over there in Shinar? That looks really nice. That would make a nice place to live. We'll just settle down there. And in this case, settling is the opposite of scattering and filling the earth. So this story is not in the Bible to give us the pros and cons of urbanization. This is an example of human disobedience. And how many times, how many times do we find ourselves at that exact same crossroads? God says, for example, do good to all, especially of those who are among the household of faith. And we say, I don't have time for that. Besides that, God, don't you know what that person did to me back in 1997? God says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we say, don't you know what kind of week I've had? How busy I've been? I deserve some me time, don't I? The point is that every Christian everywhere at some point will eventually find himself or herself in a position where their personal desires and ambitions come up against God's goodness and commands. The question always is, which will prevail? Which will give way to the other? A second way that pride is displayed in Babel is the people's desire for self-determination and independence from God. Self-determination. This means that they wanted to be the masters of their own destiny. Look at verse 3. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. It goes along. They say again, Come, let us build for ourselves a city. There's a big town hall meeting, but somebody is missing. God is missing, of course. And their language should cause us to remember some other language from earlier in the book of Genesis. Come, let us make, let us build, let us. Genesis 1.26, it is the creator God who says, let us make man in our image. So what's happening here is that the human beings are getting way out over their skis, Way, way out over their skis. This is a, a unified grab for authority to achieve independence from the creator. Again, we think back to the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 3, the words of the serpent to Eve. You will not surely die if you eat that fruit. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God. You see these parallels. This is what Genesis 11 is doing. It is, it is summarizing and illustrating humanity's big problem from the beginning of time, rejecting God's good rule and attempting to ascend to the supreme place of authority in our lives. The people of Babel 
are attempting to live life by their own power, on their own terms, apart from God. Come, let us make, let us build, let us rule. This is quite literally the first of the two ways to live, isn't it? Rather than submitting to God as our good ruler and king, we choose the role of God for ourselves. We want to be in charge. God, I've got this. It's okay. I appreciate your opinion. I know you've got an opinion on relationships and money and on how I spend my time, but I can take it from here. It's that attitude that says, I know what's best for my life because it's mine. And I will build that life wherever, whenever, and however I please. It really is a sense in which we're all trying to build something for ourselves. And again, it's not that, that hard work and ambition are evil in and of themselves. It's ambition run wild, unchecked. It's when ambition turns to autonomy from God independence from our creator and his good plans. But there's a third way that this pride is manifest in Genesis 11. We see it in disobedience, we see it in self-determination, but we also see it in the exaltation and glorification of the self. The lifting up of ourselves, the glorification of ourselves and our innovations. Again in verse four, then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They just said the quiet part out loud. <laughs> let us make a name for ourselves. This construction project is a construction project for human glory. It's about esteem and legacy. All of humanity is united to make its own name great. And you see the problem with that. Whose name is really worthy of esteem and greatness? Whose name should they be looking to make known? Psalm 113 says, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Psalm 115, just two later, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. But, but here in Genesis 11, we have a people who are not concerned for the name of the Lord. They're concerned about their own name. The centerpiece of this godless city, the scripture tells us, is a tower with its top in the heavens, probably something like an ancient structure called a ziggurat. A ziggurat would have been a huge structure, stories high, included a, a large staircase and platforms that would have represented a kind of ladder or bridge from earth up to heaven. These towers had religious implications. They were seen as attempts to ascend to the heavens or even to assault heaven. They were an attempt to domesticate God and even replace him. In summary, 
they would make a great name for whoever built them. If we are honest, if I am honest, we know how real this struggle is. We want to be remembered. We want to make a name for ourselves in this life. We probably aren't building ziggurats, but the towers of Babel are absolutely teeming in our culture and in our own hearts, right? We're a modern, sophisticated, educated group. Very, very impressed with ourselves. We are the type of people who want to build legacies that last. We want to cheer for sports teams who are legacy teams. We want to build memorials to our greatness. We parade our conflated accomplishments all around the internet, clamoring for clicks and for likes and for attention. Whose name are you making great? In your home? At your job? In your relationships? Whose name do the people around you recognize? The name of the Lord? Or a different name? Your name, maybe. You might recall a familiar Greek myth about a man named Icarus. Icarus was the son of Daedalus, who is an architect, a great inventor in ancient Greece on the island of Crete. Both father and son got into some controversy. They were accused of aiding, abetting a rival king, and so they were thrown in prison. Daedalus, being a great inventor, came up with the idea to construct two pairs of wings, one for him and one for his son, that they might escape the island. But before the escape, Daedalus called Icarus and he warned him against both complacency and pride. Flying too low would get the wings wet and it would soak them. Flying too high would burn off the wax that held them together. The father, the creator, was clear to tell his son, this is the way of salvation, but use this as I've intended But Icarus was proud. He was self-determined, independent. We might even say a modern man. And even after hearing his father's warnings, he became enamored with flying as close to the heavens as he possibly could. And you might know the story. In the end, Icarus flew too close to the sun and fell to his death. Icarus has a lot in common with the people of Babel, and so do we. We might appreciate God from a distance. We might even receive one of his good gifts and blessings if it suits our plans, but he will certainly not tell us how to live our life. That's for us to decide. Because in the end, we want the glory. In the end, We want to make a name for ourselves. And the irony, the cruel irony of this is that while there might be some temporary satisfaction to the construction of these towers, the reality is that pride, self-determination, autonomy, independence from God will never leave us satisfied. We're building a house of cards. Returning to the story in Genesis 11... 
After the people state their intentions, the question is, how will God respond? And we see that response in verses 5 to 9 with God's intervention and his judgment. God will not be idle. He will respond. He enters the scene with a scathing assessment and swift judgment. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And it is worth pausing here to really appreciate the nuance and the irony of this sentence. The Lord came down. Why would the biblical author feel the need to write that? I mean, isn't God omniscient? Doesn't he know all? Doesn't he see all? Of course he does. This is written as an ironic emphasis. We might just picture God this morning in all of his splendor from the glories of the throne room of heaven saying, what's that little thing down there the kids are building? That's, I can't, I can't, I don't have a good look at it from here. Why don't we, why don't we go down and, and take a closer look, shall we? Isaiah 40 says, to whom will you liken God? Do you not know? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. The Lord is the everlasting God. Friends, may we remember this morning who we are and who God is. Let's stop settling for inflated versions of who we are and deflated versions of the everlasting God, the creator of all things, the one who has no beginning or end. Our greatest boast, our most impressive accomplishment, the human genome, space force, artificial intelligence, are like a child writing his or her ABCs compared to the power of the living God. So God comes, he assesses, the assessment continues in verse six. The Lord said, behold, they're one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing they propose will now be impossible for them. Now this is interesting. Is God feeling a bit insecure? Is it possible that human beings could ascend to heaven after all and take his place? Robert Alter's a Jewish scholar. I love his translation of this verse. He says, the Lord said, if this is what they've begun to do, nothing they plot will elude them. Isn't that telling? In other words, an all-wise, all-knowing God understands that a unified, rebellious race, united in their pride and self-determination, if left unchecked, would bring unimaginable evil upon the world. They bring unimaginable evil upon themselves. And so even with imminent judgment at hand, we see a glimmer of grace here. Until finally, verse 7, God levels his judgment. Verse 7, come let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so, verse 8, he dispersed them over the face of the earth. They left off building a city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. 
because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. So the people want to build a city and a tower to make a name for themselves and to avoid being scattered. And in the end, in another stroke of irony, this is exactly what happened to them. And as we arrive toward the end of this amazing, amazing story, we come into the full meaning that human pride and the exaltation of self will only result in confusion and separation. Pride, self-determination, autonomy from God, glory of the self will only result in chaos and confusion and separation. John Calvin says it this way. He says, the most effective poison to lead men to ruin is to boast in themselves, in their own wisdom and willpower. Human pride and the exaltation of self will only result in confusion and separation. I'm not sure how much news you're watching these days, but there is a lot of political tension in our country right now. In, in the midst of all of that tension, I was reminded of a, a lighter political interaction that happened from an election a few years ago. A certain political candidate, who will remain nameless, was asked about his primary political consultants. The issue on the table was foreign policy, and because there were a lot of important foreign policy issues happening at the time, the interviewer asked the candidate who he was consulting with so that he might be ready to lead on day one. The candidate answered with great confidence, I'm speaking with myself. I have a very good brain. My primary consultant is myself. I listened to this interview five times to get the quote right, and it was just as funny the fifth time as it was the first time. I, I, could, I, I thought, no, it couldn't have been. And, uh, well, it was. And, and to be fair, this, this candidate would later go on to appoint many political consultants and aides, and we can fill books with politicians, athletes, CEOs, celebrities, pastors, <laughs> to give us examples of hubris and human pride. In fact, if we're honest, we really don't need to look beyond ourselves because the proud heart of Babel is nearer than we might think. Pride is often the sin behind the sin and that pride, that self-glorification will only ever result in confusion and chaos. But here's the good news, and it is very good news. God doesn't leave us here. God doesn't allow pride and confusion and separation to have the last word. In fact, you could even look over if you're close in your Bible. Just one chapter later in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, he says, go from your country to the land that I will show you and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Do you catch the contrast? The world of Babylon says, by your own effort, by your own merits, you will make a great name for yourself. The gospel of God says, by my grace, I will make your name great. I will give you a name. And I hope you picked up that God's gift to Abram and to us wasn't self-serving. For Abram, it was so that through his family, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the world that had just been scattered would be blessed, and eventually they would. Eventually, God would come down again. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the, the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, listen now, the name the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that is true glory. That is how it's supposed to be. This is the glory of the gospel, friends that God would not leave humanity lost and confused. Jesus, the divine son of God, would, would condescend to the dust of the earth. He would, he would humble himself, not looking to make a name for himself, but to glorify his father in heaven. He would submit himself to death on a cross, and then in glorious victory, he would rise from the dead and receive from God the Father the name the name. You will call him Lord. Everyone will. The question is, will you call him Lord today by faith and receive God's gift of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, or will you call him Lord on the final day of judgment when the opportunity for repentance and salvation has passed? To those of you who are in the room, I just want to speak really directly to you who maybe have been coming for a while, maybe it's your first week, and you're, you're considering Jesus, you're considering his claims, you're wondering, what would it look like if I actually became a Christian? I would ask you with all sincerity and urgency to hear and respond to the language of the gospel today, the clarity of the gospel to, to please hear the good news that you don't need to build a tower to God to find him. He has already come to you in Jesus. You don't need to submit your life to some cultural, fleeting cultural phenomenon that will pass to have purpose in your life. But instead, you can submit yourself to God and he will give you an eternal purpose beyond your wildest dreams. You don't need the exhaustion and the folly of self-determination to find your identity. Come to Jesus, and he will give you an identity. He will give you a name and a family 
and rest for your soul. Because listen, as much as pride and the exaltation of the self will result in confusion and separation, grace and the exaltation of Jesus will result in clarity and salvation. In closing, the message of Genesis 11 is a warning, really. It's a warning against human pride and, and illustrates that through a sound. Confusion. It's what Babel means. Confusion and chaos. But because of Jesus, God gives us another sound. A more beautiful sound. In Acts chapter 2, it's the sound of the disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit preaching the gospel in many languages. It's the reversal of Babel so that all might hear and know the powerful work of God in Christ. And ultimately, ultimately in the last days, we will hear a most glorious sound. Not the sound of Babel. This sound will be different. Imagine it with me. Revelation 7. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude from every nation, (laughs) from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And as that sound rings out, as Babylon and all of her rebellion and defiance is destroyed once and for all, God will remake the world and will provide to his people of all things a city for our dwelling. Not the city of man, but the city of God. Do you see? In Christ, he's going to reconcile everything. He is going to make all things new because while human pride and the glorification of self will bring confusion and separation, divine grace and the exaltation of Jesus will bring about such a great salvation. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Please forgive us for thinking too highly of ourselves and too lowly of you. Please forgive us for being too eager to make a name for ourselves, not being satisfied with the name that you have given Help us to experience the wonder and the beauty of that name, being called one of your very sons or one of your very daughters. And this day I pray that you will help us to think through the glory of the chorus that will be sung in the new heavens and the new earth, that we would behold you and behold the lamb on the throne and give you the praise that you so deserve. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.